know that you're on my heart. Because um, uh, I just want to make sure that you're being taken care of. And, you know, because I know it's a stressful season for you guys and just a lot going on. And Most of my struggles are just myself. Okay. <laughs> Other things I shouldn't be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, He is mine forevermore. Whatever my God ordains is right. These are great truths that we rejoice in because we know them to be true because they're found in God's Word. Go ahead and have a seat and join me in prayer. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the clarity and the truth of Your Word. Thank You that You've spoken to us and that these truths You give us are in no way, no how boring or dull, but they are precious and life-changing and they are so much better than the promises the world holds out for us. Thank You for Your Word. We delight in the truth You have given to us and we pray that we would conform our lives to Your truth pray that Your truth would be sweeter than honey to our soul, more precious than gold that perishes. We pray that You would help us to delight in Your truth more than we delight in the richest of foods. We pray this morning You would sanctify us by the truth. Your Word is truth. So Lord, would You speak to us? Would You change us? Would You help us to see and savor the Lord Jesus Christ? We thank You for the promise that You will hold us fast. We delight in Your strength to hold us. Lord, we delight in the hope of eternal life and the promises of the reward of Your presence. Help us now. We need You. And I pray that as we see Your Word and delight in Your Word and study Your Word, that You would prepare us to partake of the Lord's Supper. Prepare us to remember the dying love of our Savior to proclaim it as our only hope. Prepare us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hope you'll grab your Bible and turn with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 7. We've been studying the book of Revelation since the beginning of the year, and we're now at chapter 7. And I... I was at first puzzled by this passage, and there's some puzzling things still in here, but I have found this to be a precious chapter of God's Word and can't wait to declare these truths this morning. 
Revelation chapter 7, we read God's Word over us. John says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Verse 9. After this I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb." And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these? clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and He will guide them to springs of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So Revelation chapter 6 ended with a significant question. 
After the unfolding judgments of the six seals that were opened one at a time, the people of earth fled with haste from the wrath of the Lamb. Chapter 6 ended with people calling on mountains to crush them rather than face the wrath of the Lamb. And the question chapter 6 ended with is, when the great day of wrath has come, who can stand? Who is able to stand? Who's able to endure in the face of the Lamb's wrath, in the face of this judgment that is coming? Who can stand when that day comes? And the, chapter, and the, chap, the next chapter, chapter 7, answers that question in verses 9 and 10. Look at it again. After the question, who can stand at the end of chapter 6, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so the answer to the question, who can stand, is those whom the Lamb has given salvation. Those who've been given white robes. They're the ones who can stand. Now in chapter 5, the Lamb's standing represented His victorious resurrection. Remember that? Though slain, He was standing in victory. And so I don't think it's a stretch to say that the saints standing before the throne in chapter 7 verse 9 represents the resurrection that they also experience by the power of God. In other words, because Jesus was resurrected, the saints also shall be resurrected and stand in victory. And therefore, they're the ones who can stand in the great day of the wrath of God. And so you see, Revelation chapter 7 is a welcome interlude between the opening of the sixth and seventh seal. Chapter 6 ended with the sixth seal being opened and the people of earth crying out in fear of the wrath of God. But what about the people of God? What will happen to those who belong to Jesus when God, as God, judges the world? Revelation 7 gives us two visions of God's protection of His people. The first vision is in verses 1-8, through eight, and it shows us God's sealing of His servants on earth. Verses 1-8 through eight shows us God's protection of His people by sealing His servants on earth. But the second vision is in verses 9-17, through 17, and it shows us God's sheltering of His saints in heaven. So here's the massively encouraging burden of Revelation chapter 7. Here's the main point of Revelation 7. God seals and shelters his people from his judgment so that he can shepherd them as they serve him forever. Here's the massively encouraging burden of Revelation 7. God seals and shelters His people from His judgment so that He can shepherd them as they serve Him forever. 
So a lot of S's this morning. But even with all of these S's, Revelation still does not have an S on the end of it. So let's look at the first vision. God seals His servants on earth. Verses 1-8. through eight. God seals His servants on earth. So in verse 1, John says he saw four angels at the four corners of the earth. Now four corners is a symbolic way to say the whole earth. Think of the four directions of a compass. John says these four angels are holding back the four winds. Now, after the judgments of chapter 6, my best guess is that these winds that the angels are holding back represent the judgments of God. This fits well with what we see or what we're told in verse 3, that these angels are told not to harm the earth until the servants of God are sealed. And so these angels are holding back the judgments of God. And so evidently this vision in chapter 7 doesn't chronologically flow from chapter 6, but rather shows what happened before the judgments of the seals and as they were open. And so this is an interlude showing God's protection of His people before His judgment on the earth. And so this angel in verse 2 has the seal of the living God. And in verse 3, this angel says not to harm the earth until the servants of God are sealed on their foreheads. So, what is this seal, and why does God seal His people? This is not the last time that we're going to see this in the book of Revelation, and so it's important that we try to understand this seal. A seal is an authenticating mark that provides protection and signifies ownership. So a king or an important leader would use a signet ring to seal an important document to make sure that it was safe and to make sure everyone knew who the document belonged to. I think this sealing of the people of God in Revelation 7 is a reference back to the sealing of God in Ezekiel chapter 9. I think this is an illusion back. Remember we talked about in those first few messages, Revelation is chock full of Old Testament allusions and references. And here I think is a clear reference back to Ezekiel 9. In Ezekiel chapter 9, the prophet Ezekiel is given a vision of the destruction and the slaughter of the idolaters in the city of Jerusalem. But God shows Ezekiel that before the idolaters are killed... There's a man who has a writing case that contains a pen and ink. And the Lord commands this man to go through the city and to put a mark on the foreheads of all the people who grieve over the idolaters. In other words, those who are being faithful to God. And then after all the true people of God are marked, sealed on their foreheads, God commands the executioners to strike down anyone who does not have the mark on their foreheads. Your mind should be going to another Bible story here at this point too, right? The Passover. Even though that was not a mark on the forehead, still it was a mark. It was a seal of the blood on the doorposts so that the people of God were passed over. They were rescued from the judgment of God. They were marked so that the judgment wouldn't affect them. The people were sealed 
to protect them from judgment. And I think that's exactly what's happening here in Revelation chapter 7. Before the judgments come, the servants of God are sealed on their foreheads to mark them out as belonging to God. These are God's people. The judgments won't touch them. Now, this is not a literal, physical mark on the forehead. Remember, this is apocalyptic literature using symbols to represent things that are massively important. And so this is symbolic here. This ceiling is symbolic. Christians don't actually receive some kind of branding or tattoo on their foreheads to signify that they belong to God. The forehead probably represents what is front and center to us. The forehead represents what is right out front about who we are. And in the same way, our identity as the people of God should be the most central thing to us. We who have been sealed, we who have been marked by God, it should be evident to all those who see us, to all those who know us. Our identity as Christians should be as clear to the world as a big old X on our forehead. The way that we live our lives, the way that we treat people, the way that we worship God should make it so evident to the world that it would be just as clear as if we had an actual mark on our forehead. Now, later in Revelation, we are actually told what God marks His people with. In fact, turn over just a few chapters, so I want you to see this in this context. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Revelation 14, 1 says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And so the mark that we are given is the very name of God. God marks us with his own name to say that we are his own. In fact, remember what we learn in the rest of the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. All believers have been what? Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. God seals us with Himself to guarantee that He won't abandon us. 2 Corinthians 1.22 says that God has put His seal on us and given His Holy Spirit in our hearts. 2 Timothy 2.19 says God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And so God's people are sealed to protect us and to mark us out as belonging to God. Churches, this is not a massively encouraging truth. God knows who His people are. He protects us. He delivers us from His wrath. He protects us from His judgments. Friends, I'm the last person on earth that God should choose to seal and protect I deserve His full and fierce wrath and judgment. But hallelujah, because of Jesus, I am sealed. I belong to God forever. He is my protection. He is my refuge. He is my shield. Now in verse 4, John hears the number of those who are sealed as 144,000. 
Now, as you probably know and have encountered, there are various interpretations of this number. There are some who actually teach that 144,000 people are all that will be saved in total from all of history, which is absolutely crazy. Because if that's true, how extremely arrogant would it be to claim that you are one of those 144,000? There are others who teach this in a sort of modified way. There are some who teach that this is the actual number of Jews who will be saved in the quote, end times. They take this number and this reference to the tribes of Israel to be referring to a revival among ethnic Jews before Jesus returns. However, as I read the book of Revelation, I take this number to be symbolic, representing the entire people of God. I take this number to be symbolic of the entire big C church of God. I take this picture of 144,000 to be representing all true believers from all times. And let me give you a few reasons why from the text. The first is this. Numbers are symbolic in the book of Revelation. No one disputes that. We've already seen this over and over again, and we're going to see it again. 144,000 is 12 squared times 1,000. 12 times 12 times 1,000. And so 12 is a number of completeness, right? You have the 12 tribes of Israel. You have the 12 apostles. And so 12 times 12 is super completeness. Very complete. And multiplying that number by a round number like 1,000 is saying completeness to an ultimate level. Here's complete completeness. But also... Notice in verse 3 the phrase, the servants of God. Now, to interpret that phrase as only referring to a few select super servants of God, I think is to, to not do justice to the text. When God seals His servants, He seals all of His servants. This isn't referring to just a few select super Christians. It's referring to all believers as servants of the living God. Also notice that this list of tribes of Israel begins with the tribe of Judah. Now this should highlight something for you because in no other list in all of Scripture of the list of the 12 tribes of Israel is Judah listed first. Why? Because Judah was not the firstborn son of Jacob, right? And so why list Judah first? Well, probably because Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. This means that Judah, though not the firstborn son, was the most important tribe of Israel. And so listing Judah first and a few other irregularities with this particular list, I think is, is screaming to us that this is symbolic. This is meant to be symbolic. This is not meant to be literal tribes of Israel. And to me, the most clear reason in the text that we are to see this 144,000 as representing all of the people of God is in what John sees beginning in verse 9. Now stay with me here for a moment as we finish this sort of first vision. Remember back in Revelation chapter 5 that John was told about a lion, but when he turned around, what did he see? He saw a lamb. 
He says, I heard about a lion, but I saw a lamb. Well, notice that here in chapter 7 that John hears the number 144,000. You see that in verse 4? He hears this number. He doesn't see this number. He hears it. But in verse 9, what does he see? He sees a great multitude that no one could number. And so just as the lion is the lamb, so the 144,000 is the innumerable number of believers from every tribe, tongue, and nation. John hears the 144,000, but he sees all believers from all times. I think the reason we have this symbolic number, so why not just say all believers from all times? Why use these actual numbers and these actual tribes? Well, I think this is here for, to remind us of a few very important, very massive truths. I think this number reminds us that God knows exactly who will be saved. Like God knows exactly to the exact number who will be saved. The, the gathering around the throne may seem innumerable to John, but God knows exactly who He saves. He counts them each by number. Also, this number reminds us that God saves all of His people. This super completeness. God doesn't leave any of His people out. He doesn't forget His people. And also, I think this 144,000 from the tribes of Israel reminds us that all true believers are part of the true Israel of God. Right? As the Bible clearly teaches, those of faith, those Jews or Gentiles, are the true sons of Abraham. Those who have faith are the true Israel. God saves from all nations, and He grafts His people into His covenant promises so that we can enjoy all the promises made to Abraham and to Israel. Well, we need to move on from this first vision, but here's the point of verses 1-8. through eight. God seals His servants. God protects His servants from His judgment. But here's the second vision. In verses 9-17, through 17, God shelters His saints in heaven. God seals His servants on earth and God shelters His saints in heaven. So as if verses 1-8 through 8 doesn't contain enough encouragement for us today, we also have verses 9-17. through 17. The scene here shifts from earth to heaven, from sealing to celebrating. And as I studied this text this week, my heart was so full of encouragement and longing to be part of this multitude around the throne. As I prepared this sermon this week, my biggest fear was that I would fail at the task of encouraging you with this encouragement. My biggest fear is that you will leave here and not be massively encouraged by this vision in verses 9 through 17. And so here's, here's how I want to exposit these verses. I want to do so by pointing you to seven encouraging truths that God wants you to see and rejoice in. Seven encouraging truths. These are truths that God wants us to know about what heaven and the eternal state will be like for those who are redeemed in Jesus. Listen, please hear this. If you don't hear this, you will miss the point of all seven of these encouragements. These seven truths that we're about to see in the text will only 
be true of those who are trusting in Jesus. Everybody will not get the benefit and blessing of these seven truths. Only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And so notice these seven truths about what we can look forward to. Number one, we will be with a vast and diverse multitude. We will be with a vast and diverse multitude. Verse 9 says that this great multitude is impossible to number by us. We couldn't count them if we tried. Friends, what should this remind us of? It should remind us of the promise to Abraham, right? In Genesis chapter 12, God promises to make Abraham a great nation. And then through the rest of the book of Genesis, he fleshes out what a great nation means. In Genesis 13, God gets very specific about this promise. God says that he will make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the dust on the earth. God says, if you could count the dust of the earth, then you can count your offspring, Abraham. Just imagine picking up a handful of dust. And imagine trying to count the individual pieces of dust in your hand. And now imagine trying to count every single piece of dust on earth. Genesis 22, God gives another picture. He gives the picture of sand on the seashore. Abraham, your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the shore. In Genesis 15, God says His descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Even with all of our technology, all of our telescopes, we can't number the stars. This vast and diverse and countless multitude of believers from every nation in verse 9 is meant to just sort of overwhelm us with encouragement. I'll I'll be honest. There are times when I get discouraged by how few believers that I get to worship with in this life. We're a a pretty small church. Not as small as some, but certainly not as big as others. We don't get to worship with thousands of believers each week. In fact, we've probably all been to sporting events or plays or concerts where there are vastly more people than we get to see worshiping Jesus week in and week out. But friends, what I find to be massively encouraging about this vision is that one day we will see the whole of the number of the redeemed in glory. We will see the Nicaraguan. We will see the Ethiopian. We will see the Afghani. We will see the Bengali believers. This multitude is meant to be an encouragement to us in this life of limited perspective. We have limited perspective now. But here God unveils this vision to say, look at this vast multitude that I have redeemed by my grace. Look at what God's in the process of doing right now. He's in the process of saving a vast and diverse multitude from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And so the question that I have when I see this vision is, are you going to be part of this great multitude? Are you going to be numbered among those who can't be numbered? Are you going to be there? Are you trusting in Jesus alone? Here's the second truth that I want you to see. 
We will give glory to God for our, worship, for our salvation in worship. We will give glory to God for our salvation in worship. Notice that this great multitude is before the throne and before the Lamb. They are clothed in white robes and they have palm branches in their hands. Now, palm branches symbolize victory. But victory for what? Notice verse 10. They cry out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. So here's the substance of the victory song of the redeemed saints. Salvation is of God. Salvation belongs to our God. Notice that they give credit where credit is due. The redeemed in heaven don't sing about their willingness to be saved or their moral uprightness or how they uh, escape God's wrath due to their superior wisdom. No, they sing about God's sovereign grace in their lives. God saved them. They didn't save themselves. Friends, when we're around this throne with this great multitude, we will not sing about our ability to overcome. Our salvation is not owing to our decisions or our character or the strength of our willpower. Salvation belongs to God. He is the initiator. He is the giver. He is the finisher of our salvation. And thus, He deserves all the glory forever and ever. Notice the response of the heavenly choir in verses 11 and 12. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What does this heavenly chorus do when the saints sing in unison about God's salvation? They worship God. They celebrate His glory and His wisdom and His grace. You see what this is, friends? Do you see what this is? This is a picture of the opposite of the Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, all the people gathered in one language to declare how great they were. They set out to build a tower to declare their majesty. But here's a picture of all different languages, all different cultures, joining in unison, declaring how great God is. Friends, our salvation is not just something that happened to us that we can move on from. It's not just something that we move past to bigger and greater things. No, friends, our salvation by grace through faith in Jesus will forever be the content of the victory celebration of heaven. We will forever sing salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Here's the third encouraging truth. We will not be overwhelmed by the great tribulation. We will not be overwhelmed by the great tribulation. Now, verse 13 is super interesting to me. One of the elders of heaven asked John who these people are and where have they come from. In verse 14, John's like, bro, why are you asking me? I got no clue who it is. You know who they are. And the content of what this elder tells John goes all the way to the end of this chapter. 
This heavenly elder gives John some epic truths about this great multitude of worshipers around the throne. Notice first where they came from. Where did they come from? He says, they are coming out of the great tribulation. Now, the concept of tribulation is one that has been, I think, misunderstood and abused a lot. There are many people who teach that the tribulation is only a special end times suffering that will happen for seven years before Jesus returns. Now listen, if that's your view, that's okay. Like, I'm not mad at you. We can be friends. We can be part of the same. Like, that's fine. That's not my view, but that's fine if that's what you hold. But here's the problem. It's fine if you believe there's a seven-year end time period of tribulation, but you can't believe that's the only tribulation. That's the problem because the Bible is clear and Revelation is clear about the fact that tribulation describes the entire church age. From the time between Jesus' death and resurrection to His second coming is the church age. And this is the age of tribulation. This is the age in which we live. The time between Jesus' resurrection and His second coming is the time of tribulation. The tribulation is not something future to us, in other words, but it's something that we're currently in. Jesus Himself taught this, that the tribulation is a present reality. John 16, 33, Jesus said, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Also, there are 21 references to tribulation in Paul's letters that refer to it as a present reality. Listen, you can't get around this fact. The New Testament writers believed they were living in the great tribulation. And thus, we are still in that tribulation. There's a time where the church of Jesus Christ is persecuted and marginalized and pressured to compromise. But this truth in Revelation 7 is meant to encourage us to persevere through this tribulation, right? We will not be overwhelmed by it. We will come out of the great tribulation, is what this elder says. There's going to come an end to this tribulation that we know. We need not fear it because God is in control of it and we will persevere through it. And so God's protection of us on earth is not a promise that we will be kept from all suffering. That would be to misinterpret the sealing of the first vision. It doesn't mean He'll keep us from all suffering, but rather this is a promise that He will keep us safe spiritually. Christ will hold us fast. He is a sure and steady anchor. We will persevere because God will preserve us. I love the line in John Newton's Amazing Grace, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Fourth, encouraging truth from this passage. We will wear garments that are blood white. We will wear garments that are blood White. So three times in this passage, we're told that the saints have on white robes. In verse 14, we're told how these robes became to be white. The elder tells John that these worshipers around the throne have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, newsflash, 
If you wash clothes in blood, it doesn't turn them white unless it is the blood of Jesus. Because the blood of Jesus has a cleansing power. This is what Jesus does. This is a picture of what Jesus does. Jesus makes the unclean clean. He makes the stained and the guilty spotless. When we come to Jesus, when we trust in Him, we are forgiven and cleansed from all our sin. But not only are we cleansed, notice we're given these new robes. We're clothed with the garments of Jesus' righteousness. Garments that are pure white because He is pure. This is part of what we remember here in just a moment when we partake of the Lord's Supper. We remember that Jesus' blood is powerful enough to cleanse us from all our guilty stains. We remember that it was not our works or our goodness that caused us to be white and clean, but we remember that it was the blood, the powerful blood of Jesus. So friends, do you have the pure garments cleansed by the blood of Jesus? Friends, these will be our garments for all eternity. And they will constantly forever remind us of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Well, notice the fifth encouraging truth, and we'll move a little quicker here. Notice we will serve God continually before His throne. We will serve God continually before His throne. So because we've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus, verse 15 says, therefore, because of that, therefore, we will serve God day and night in His temple. You wonder what we will do for all eternity as redeemed saints? We will serve God. When we are glorified, we will finally fully do what we were created to do. We will be a kingdom of priests continually serving the only one worthy. This is why we've been redeemed. It's for the praise of His glory, for His service, for His honor, for His glory. Six, we will be sheltered by God's presence. We will be sheltered by God's presence. The end of verse 15 says, And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. As we serve God day and night, God will provide the shelter that we need. The word shelter literally means to tabernacle over. God will tabernacle over us. With his presence, he will be our refuge this is heaven, friends. This is heaven. This is, this is the eternal state. This is the future that we long for. Being sheltered by the presence of God forever. So that we will never, ever be harmed again. Number seven, and finally, encouraging truth. We will be satisfied with and protected by our shepherd. We will be satisfied with and protected by our shepherd. Verses 16 and 17 have so many epic truths, but they all boil down to this. Jesus is the good shepherd, not just now, but forever. He is the bread of life who will satisfy us so that notice we will never hunger. We will never thirst anymore. The sun will not strike us. The heat will not scorch us because we have a shepherd he will guide us to springs of living water that will continually give us life upon life upon life. And notice God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. 
Friends, there are so many tears in this life on earth. So many sorrows and sufferings and injustices that we should weep over. There are tears because of death. There are tears because of pain. There are tears because of suffering. But friends, here's the future we long for. Here's the future we hope in. God will wipe them all away. No sorrow, no death, no separation, no depression, no loneliness forever. Forever. Here's the point of this passage. God seals and shepherds His people from His judgment so that He can shepherd them as they serve Him forever. God seals and shelters His people so that He can shepherd them as they serve Him forever. As we move to the Lord's Supper now, let me encourage you to do this. Rejoice that you have been sealed. Delight in serving and worshiping God day and night. Celebrate the salvation that Jesus has purchased for you. Revel in the hope of your future before God's throne. And exult in your precious Savior, Shepherd. This is why the Lord's Supper is given to us. To remember of what a great hope we have because of the death of our Savior. We're to rejoice in what He has purchased for us, believers. If you're numbered among this multitude who has been sealed and sheltered by God, do this in remembrance of your Savior's death, of His perfect sacrifice for you. But listen, please hear me. If you are not trusting in Jesus, if you don't have this eternal hope in Him, please do not partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. This is only for followers of Jesus who are seeking to live for Him in the context of the local church. And so let's take just a moment